This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching here at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. It's the basis for the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on April 16, 2023. It's the second or first in our message series called Unstrung, about how we find truth in disorientation. Today's passage lifted from John's gospel is one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that happens on that very first Easter day. I'll be reading the entire text from verse 19 down through verse 31 from the 2020 translation called the New American Standard Bible. Now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut and the disciples were together due to the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So they, so Jesus said to them again, peace be to you, just as the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and unless I put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were again inside. Thomas was with them. Jesus came the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. And he said to Thomas, Place your finger here and see my hands, and take your hand and put it into my side, and do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. This text really unfolds in three different episodes. It's the first appearing of Jesus to the disciples, and then uh, after that, the conversation between the disciples and Thomas, and then the third part of the story when Jesus appears again to the disciples with Thomas present. So let's talk about the first part of this story, verses 19 to 23, where Jesus brings this commission uh, to the disciples that he has asked them to do. It says in the text that this is the evening of the first day of the week. So it's the same Easter day in which Mary Magdalene discovered the empty tomb that morning and reported it to the disciples that you can read earlier in John chapter 20. It's the very same day in the evening. Now, why were they all gathered together in one place? It almost makes it sound like, according to John's gospel, that they're hiding out. And it says in the text that they were hiding together, or they were together because of the fear of the Jews. And it's not the the Jews in general. It has to do with the religious leaders of the Jewish community during that time, which that same community had, had Jesus arrested and ultimately put to death by the hands of the Roman Empire. But 
they're afraid that they are now going to be uh, associated with Jesus in a way that might result in their own arrest. So Jesus, it says, comes and stands in their midst. And so this is the second in John's gospel of his post-resurrection encounters. Again, the first one with Mary at the tomb, and now this one with the disciples. Now, John's language about this appearance makes it a bit unclear if Jesus kind of appeared in the room or if he entered the room as normal. It just says Jesus came and stood in their midst. It doesn't describe how that came to be. This is a classic theophany format. Now, theophany is a a word we use in biblical theology to describe an appearance of God. So think of it like an epiphany, that's an, an, an appearance. This is theophany, an appearance of God. And it follows a very similar format we've seen before. In this case, Jesus appears, that's number one. Number two, there is a usual response of fear after people have received some kind of divine appearance. The third phase is is the the divine presence. In this case, Jesus says, peace or do not be afraid. And then the fourth ingredient of a, a classic theophany is some kind of commission or some type of work that is now given to those who receive this theophany. What's different in this particular theophany than most of the other ones is that second step. Usually, people respond to a divine appearance by fear, with fear or terror. It says in John's gospel that uh, the exact opposite, they rejoiced when Jesus appeared in their midst. This resurrection appearance of Jesus turns all the usual ways in which a theophany works on end. Their fear is replaced by joy. And then there's a commission, whereas Jesus says to them in verse 22, Peace be with you, just as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. So Jesus is giving them a clear mission, and it's a clear mission not just to them, but it's to the whole the whole church. The mission is not to gather together, which is what they've done in the in this uh, room they're they're meeting together in, but rather they are to go. In this way, that this language that Jesus delivers here in John twenty is very similar to what Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter twenty eight in the so-called Great Commission, where he tells them to go into all the world making disciples. And so these are very similar in the sense that this commission of being sent is given to them. Now, the next two verses are potentially some of the most confusing in this particular story because they differ so much from Luke's account of these events. It says in John's gospel that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But if we Read Luke's version of this story that the Holy Spirit doesn't come until the day of Pentecost, which is 10 days after Jesus has ascended to heaven. So uh, how do we reconcile these two timelines? And then compounding this uh, issue is what Jesus then says in verse 23 about how if they forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if they retain the sins of any, they have been Retained. So how are we to understand the disciples' capacity to manage and mitigate sin? Well, one of the things we have to understand about John's gospel from the very outset, and we learn this even in John chapter 2, in that he includes a story in John chapter 2 that actually happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's the cleansing of the temple. And what we learn in John's gospel is that John shows very little interest in the chronology of events. It's not really important for John to lay out this story 
uh, kind of in an orderly, chronological sort of way. John's arrangement of these stories is much, much more thematic and much more theological. So there's no real need in some ways to synthesize or to harmonize this story in John chapter 20 with what Luke tells us in his gospel in the book of Acts. John is simply converging these stories together. Now, the matter of sin, in the case of the disciples, is more of a a prophetic pronouncement than their capacity to actually do that work. Only God holds the work of forgiving sins. And please take note of the verb tense here. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. So the the verb tense is very careful in how it's framing this. It's not so much a cause and effect relationship as as much as it is that the disciples have the capacity to proclaim the reality of that which is already present in terms of a person's either confession or sin or the lack of it. And that opens a key passageway to us here. That power and authority are found only in Christ. Jesus' appearance to the disciples is the reorientation that they have been waiting for. As they have gathered together in this room, fear is that which is prevalent in their midst. But when Jesus appears, they are opened up with this opportunity to rejoice. Jesus breathes the Spirit on them. They have the capacities to speak of God's forgiveness of sins. Their work of being sent is exactly the same as Jesus. And Their work is to point to Jesus as Jesus himself pointed to the Father. So there's a way in which Jesus invites his followers, even us, to point the way to God by pointing people to Jesus himself. In this story, though, there is a character that is missing. And this is the omission of the story in verses 24 to 25. And what is omitted here is the presence of Thomas. When Jesus appears to the disciples, there are 10 of them in this room. Judas, uh, according to the readings we have in other gospels, has already committed suicide. So now there's 11 disciples and Thomas, apparently at this first episode of Jesus's appearance, is absent. So then when Thomas arrives after Jesus has departed, The disciples try and explain what has happened. And Thomas states that he will not believe it until he places his finger and his hand into Jesus's wounded body. In a sense, Thomas becomes the disciples' first opportunity to tell the story. So the disciples here have the opportunity to be witnesses of the Jesus who's appeared in their midst, and the person to whom they're witnessing that is Thomas, one of their companions. And take note in the text, it doesn't tell us anything at all about their either success or failure to convert him. It doesn't say anything at all about how they may or may not have treated Thomas differently. And so the key here is that Thomas in this text is never described as a doubter or with any disdain. A common idiom we hear often is uh, to be a doubting Thomas, which is uh, an idiom grounded in this very text. But this is not part of John's telling of the story. We have to be very careful to not read into the story the assumptions we bring with it. At no point is Thomas described as a doubter in this story. At no point do the disciples criticize him for his lack of uh, just uh, 
you know, baseless belief in what the disciples have told him. In many ways, this kind of criticism of Thomas is unfounded, and he really represents the reality check that many people long for. All he actually desires is to have the same experience that the other 10 disciples had already had. This opens up another key passageway for us here, that faith, by its very nature, holds the tension between certainty and uncertainty. Now, over the years, I've heard some sermons that malign Thomas. Some of those sermons were preached by other people besides me. I've preached more than enough sermons about the doubting Thomas over the years. And as I read this text afresh in this day and in this age and in this moment and season in life, I begin to understand Thomas in a different light. Thomas's demand to see the resurrection, resurrected Jesus in many ways is normative. He's no doubter. He simply is seeking. I mean, can you imagine it from a different perspective? Imagine it from Thomas's point of view. What's it like to be the only one of Jesus's disciples to be left out of witnessing the resurrection, resurrected Jesus? And so what he does is he simply longs to experience Jesus, not in a special way, but in the same way the other 10 have longed for him. And this helps us understand a little bit more about what faith is really about. Faith is not about certainty, because that would, if it, things were certain, there'd be no need for faith. But it's also not necessarily only about uncertainty, Faith is what holds these two in tension. Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we feel like we got it, sometimes we feel like we don't quite have it yet. It's in that tension between the two that faith becomes all the more active in our lives. This particular episode now closes with a submission, and it's the submission on Thomas's part in verses 26 to 29 of our text. It says that eight days went by. Eight days went by. This is now the Monday of the next week, and Jesus now appears again. So who knows why they're all gathered together after eight different day, eight days that have gone by, but Thomas is there in their midst this time. Now, this time, Jesus, it says, somehow appears in the room despite the door being shut. And he brings to them the very same greeting. He says, peace be to you. And then it says immediately in verse 27 that he said to Thomas, he addresses him directly. He's deliberate about Thomas. And he invites Thomas to do exactly as Thomas had asked to do. Place your finger here, Jesus says in verse 27, and see my hands, and take your hand and put it into my side, and do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. This is such a powerful text, and in many ways, the way in which we can relate to Thomas as we hear this this encounter with Jesus play itself out. Jesus doesn't doesn't condemn Jesus. Thomas at any instance. He simply invites him to move away from disbelief into belief. 
And as he does so, it, the text never tells us that Thomas actually placed his finger in Jesus's hand, in, into his hands. It never at any point talks about Thomas's hand being put into the side of Jesus. Jesus invites him to do so. Thomas has demanded to do so. But the text kind of coyly leaves out whether Thomas actually did those things or not. What Thomas did do is in verse 28. said, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. His response is uh, creedal in its formation. It's like a little creed. My Lord, my God. It's his confession of belief. And take note here, especially of the possessive pronoun, my Lord and my God. There's a way in which Thomas completely submits himself to the resurrected Jesus in his midst. And then Jesus then goes on to talk about how harder it will be to believe without seeing. He's not talking about Thomas here. He's talking about all of the disciples, that the disciples have had an advantage that others will not. And so there's a beatitude here at the end of this text in John chapter 20, verse 29. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. There's no notion of reward, just blessing. Notice the beatitude leaves out what the reward will be if they, if people can embrace this behavior. Blessed are they who did not see. Well, what's the blessing? It doesn't say. It just says that there's a blessing there. And that opens up the final key passageway for us. That the mystery of faith is the antidote to aimless confusion. You see, there's nothing nothing certain in life. And as we search for it, it will ultimately leave us wanting. So the mystery of faith, of believing, takes all of that tension and all of that uncertainty and all of the ways in which we might just simply still feel confused and entrusts it to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Rather than holding all of that ourselves, Jesus gives it a a resolution and a rest, if you will. There's a a peace to be engaged here. Thomas moves from this place of wanting and hungering for the same experience the other 10 disciples had to arriving at a point of sufficiency. My Lord and my God, that's enough for him to hold at this moment in his own life. Without this kind of resolution and rest that Jesus brings, we're, we're left kind of carrying the burden of all the things we can't understand, and especially carrying the burden of all the things we wish we could fix but can't. We leave our life in the hands of Jesus, and that's the mystery of our faith. We're, we admit that we may not know how to fix or understand or to dispel confusion, but we do know where to entrust that. We do know who to give that to. And John chapter 20 in this episode gives us just a marvelous story about where to place all of that. And it's in the very hands of Jesus himself. If you have comments or reflections, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. If you click on news in the upper right-hand corner, there's a drop-down menu that will appear. Click on podcast and then click on this week's episode and you can leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org. It stands for firstfreemethodistchurch.org to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.